Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen, and with me is... Vendra Hardwar. And Jeff Kanata is off this week, but we have a great guest appearing on the show later today, Ariel Fisher. Uh, we're going to start this week by discussing some what we've been watching and then move on into an in-depth review of Pet Cemetery, the new remake on Stephen King's horror classic. So that's what we got in store uh, for the show this week. But before we get to any of that, uh, there is a momentous announcement we have to make, which is that at some point in the near future, probably next week, the summer movie wager is coming back. And uh, oh I, I don't know why this is so popular with our audience, but there is a huge segment of our audience that really loves this uh, this wager, uh, probably because they like seeing me annihilate you guys at games. Is my That's my I guess. I think it's more they like seeing Dave just stress for <laughs> for so much of the year, right? Like, that must be it. Uh yeah so uh, yeah as with uh, previous years you can keep track of all the fun at thesummermoviewager.com and for those who don't know what the summer movie wager is it is an annual game whereby we select the top 10 films of the summer by domestic box office you can find all the rules at thesummermoviewager.com you can find past games that we've played and so on and uh yeah it's it's generally a blast we're really appreciative to Dennis uh if one of our listeners for building this website and maintaining it year after year it has lots of trivia it has uh real time updating leaderboards and so on and so forth and if you want to be included in the leaderboard you can actually enter the summer movie wager with your top 10 picks of the summer right now by going to the summermoviewager.com clicking on the play along button and as long as you enter before April 24th, 11.59 p.m. Pacific time, you will be included in the leaderboard for this year. Now, why, pray tell, is April 24th, 2019, 11.59 p.m. the the cutoff? That is because Uh that is the day before Avengers Endgame is released in theaters, right? And so the idea is that once Avengers Endgame is released, uh, we will know how much money Avengers Endgame will make, and uh, that will give you critical information for whether or not uh, it will be number one at the box office this summer. And we don't want you to have that before you are going to be part of the leaderboard. So uh, if you want to enter, again, go to thesummermoviewager.com and uh, click on play along. You can enter in uh, and be part of the leaderboard this year. Uh, Devendra, you know, we're, I, I don't want to, uh-huh. I don't, I don't want to tip our hand, but like, uh, what, are, what are you thinking in terms of Avengers Endgame? You're feeling that's going to be your number one pick this summer? Maybe solid number two. We'll see. We'll oh, see how really? It goes. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, like as I mentioned, I'm considering picking Avengers Endgame just to spite you, um, <laughs> as as number two, right? And and choosing yeah. a different film at number one. I mean, you could do that, Dave. If if you're brave enough, please, please go ahead. I'm so yeah. strongly considering it. You know, I, I actually was genuinely considering it until. Uh, AMC's website melted down during the Avengers Endgame presale. <laughs> Something that's never happened before. In, uh, uh, yeah, history. it's not only the like ticketing website, but uh-huh. the the actual Everything. like corporate website was down as well. Like, uh-huh. like all their servers were just completely toast. And then Fandango did an interesting thing as well uh, that they basically uh, put you in a queue. Right, they like put you in a line if you tried to uh-huh. order Avengers Endgame tickets. Uh, and you couldn't you can get your Avengers Endgame ticket. It's like, hey, you're in line. Wait like an hour and twenty That's minutes. That's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. So can you can you disclose like how you are planning to see Avengers Endgame, Devendra? 
Oh, I have a uh, I have a screening. Oh, it is, it's wow. going to be an IMAX, and I'm very excited about that. Aslo, I actually did manage to buy tickets for opening night too, but I'll probably just refund that. I bought the best yeah. in San Diego. Yeah, <laughs> I bought tickets for opening night, and I bought tickets for Saturday morning, nine a.m. You really and- want to do this again? Well, then yeah. after that, after that, I uh, then I got uh, like a press screening, and it was. Yeah, one of the most beautiful days of my life when I got that press screening because it's like because it's like I don't have to like fight the crowds to to see the film, um, so I'm very excited about that. And then a- after I see the screening, I will then decide if I want to. I, I don't think I'm going to see it three times in one week. This is this is the world you live. Like the life you live is you the luxury of seeing Endgame three times in a week. But Maybe. I'm well, yeah, because apparently it's difficult to actually get tickets right to yes. see it at all. Yeah. Um, but, uh, there's some theaters that are playing it around the clock. Have you seen that? Like, I have seen that. Some like, of my theaters are playing at like 4am, right? There's like a 4am screening of Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. So I am very curious. Uh, obviously we're going to review Avengers Endgame on the podcast, but I'm very curious. Like, it, is it going to be the kind of movie that you want to see more than once? It's you know three I mean? hours long. It's three, three hours, hours long. Of superheroes and, punching each other. Come and, on. And I have not seen the trailer for Avengers Endgame yet, but I have been in a theater and closed my eyes during the trailer, right? Uh-huh. So I'll hear kind of the music and stuff, which, by the way, gets me super amped. Well, and well, let me sounds, tell you, you're not missing much. It sounds trailers, like so a good. pretty uh, depressing movie. I'm just going to say, like, just yeah. not having seen the trailer, I've heard the trailer, <laughs> and it sounds pretty depressing, right? So I'm curious, yeah. like... Yeah. Are they going to be able to do a three-hour-long movie that like people want to go back and see again? Right, yeah. like that's that's what I'm curious about. This is Lawrence of Arabia for a whole new generation. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. It's this generation's Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, so, uh, uh, so many questions. I mean, uh, I just I want this whole thing to be over. So, <laughs> I'm, let, let's just keep going. Let's just, yeah. <laughs> you you want this whole thing to be over? Um, Enough of Avengers Endgame. Come on! So you obviously really didn't like Infinity. Like you're, it sounds like you're over it. You're you're just like I am. I am over it. I'm certainly over it. Like I I I'm I'm enjoying the smaller superhero movies. You weren't here for Shazam, but have you seen Shazam, Dave? I have seen Shazam. That's right. It's a it's a lot of fun. I want more of that. Give me more of that fun stuff because I I think I just I was irked by the way Infinity War was handled. And yeah, you know, I've talked about this. And it's really on our end of year podcast. So it was. Probably my most disappointing movie last year. I hope Endgame does better. And honestly, I just hope it does good by these characters. My biggest problem with Infinity War was I think it kind of, uh, it kind of, it didn't treat a lot of those characters really well because it was rushing to the next thing. So maybe with more room to breathe, maybe it'll be better. Former Slash Filmcast guest Patrick Willems released a, a video essay series about the Marvel franchise. You see this? No. Nope. Uh, so actually, I, I want to talk about that. But before we get into that, uh, I want to just say we we need to pause and reflect on the fact that uh, we have complete we have just recently completed a crossover event nearly as ambitious of, as Avengers: Infinity War. Yeah, which is we, we got should. both members of the Blank Check podcast on the Slash Filmcast uh, in consecutive weeks. I mean, that is awesome, and uh, I'm grateful to you guys for doing the show without me last week. And uh, no it was really, really fun to have David Sims on the show a couple weeks ago. Uh, but love Blank Check, the show, and uh, loved having those guys on the Slash Homecast. And uh, I'm yeah. really just grateful that we were able to make it happen. I hope, hope everyone listening enjoyed those episodes. So, okay, moving on. Patrick Willems did this uh, video, a series of video essays about 
the Marvel Universe and and the, like the impetus for that series of video essays, one of which stars former guest of last week's episode of the podcast, Griffin Newman, uh, is <laughs> so, so it's all a very incestuous world here in yeah, the uh, yeah. in the podcasting world. But uh, the the video essay series is basically talking about the limitations of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it starts with the question of, like, why isn't Patrick Willems more psyched about Avengers Endgame? Because theoretically, as a nerd, like, he should be super psyched. And he kind of explores, like, why he's not more psyched. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons is that, like, the, the, the these uh, movies are based on comic books, right? And... One of the great things about comic books is you get to see how these characters change and learn and grow over time. And that is largely a process that is elided in the films, right? Um, I'll, I'll just throw out a couple of examples. So I'm, I'm going to spoil everything through Avengers yeah. Infinity War. I mean, War, what right? are you talking about? Tony Stark started out being a self-serving, you know, serving, conceited <laughs> Playboy billionaire, and he's ended – being that same guy on a spaceship, like, <laughs> come on. He's slightly more selfless, Devendra. But I think, like, yeah. like it, it, there are some major um, decisions that get made in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that are then just undone rapidly in subsequent films, like, with, with almost no explanation. So, yeah. uh, example, Spider-Man Homecoming. At the end of that film, he decide, Peter Parker is like, hey, you know what? I don't want to be an Avenger, right? That's like a big moment when he's like, I don't want to be an Avenger. I want to be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, blah, blah, blah. Give me six months until the release of uh, Avengers Infinity War, Yeah, and then six months later, he's like, you know what? Uh, I can't be friendly neighborhood Spider-Man unless, uh, if there is no neighborhood. That's what he says in the new film, right? And so it's like... I mean, to be honest, yes, there's a giant spaceship over Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, okay, okay. Now you gotta get it. Okay, that's a good point. That's a good point. But but still, you know what I mean? Like, Well, how about like S.H.I.E.L.D. crumbling and falling apart because it was actually you know, an evil uh, Nazi organization. Like, the TV series, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., kind of dealt with that. The movies, not so much. Well, yeah, I mean, because in the next film, they're basically, S.H.I.E.L.D. is basically just, like, uh, Nick Fury instead, right? It, yeah. it, it's, it's, it serves the same function. Nick Fury serves the function that S.H.I.E.L.D. served in the earlier yeah. movies, with, right? With a much smaller budget, and that's it. Right, so it doesn't, it doesn't change the dynamic of the Nick Fury Avengers relationship that much. Yeah. And then uh, I would say the one that like baffles me the most is um, at the end of Iron Man three, Tony Stark decides to blow up all the, the Iron Men. And then <laughs> yeah. like, and, and he gets the uh, thing taken out of his chest. Yeah. Right. And then like in the next movie, uh, the thing's back in his chest and then all the well, Iron it's a different are thing. It's, it's a, a different, different thing. thing. It's a but different it's not, thing. It's not the thing keeping him alive. It's a thing making him stronger. Yeah, that's right. I think. No, good, good call, Devinder. But you but know, what it, I mean? like, it is very. Yeah, it feels like we didn't, we didn't really, yeah, gain much there. So I think, I think the issue is right. Like, what is uh, these characters make these huge decisions during these movies? But then, like, by the time you get to the next movie, they've already lived an entire lifetime between those films, right? <laughs> yeah, and you don't see it. You don't see what happened. And usually the movies return things to the status quo, right? <clears throat> so you have like another S.H.I.E.L.D. or version of S.H.I.E.L.D. You have uh, Tony Stark still being Iron Man. You, you know, like the, the, the characters fr- from movie to movie, the status quo changes very little. And that's one of the biggest weaknesses of the mm-hmm. franchise is you don't get to see all the in-between stuff. All the stuff that happened between the movies like 
uh, Vision and Wanda's love story. You know, like you don't see any of that stuff. They just start in that state. Mm-hmm. And uh, it'll be curious to see if Avengers Endgame, uh, like, I, I have a feeling, Devendra, that the stakes are going to be real this time. Like, I, I have a feeling that there's going to be some irreversible stuff that goes on That's in good. Avengers Endgame. G- give me some actual death. Give me some characters actually moving on and putting, you know, hanging up their mantles or whatever. Uh, we need actual, yeah, change. We need actual consequences, and I need stakes. That's all I, I, I want. I think there will be stakes. Yeah. I, I'm sure all the people that disappeared in Avengers Infinity War are never going to come back. That's my... I'm, I'm <laughs> betting it now. I wish we could make yeah. this part of the summer movie wager. Black Panther is never coming back, guys. No, I'm just joking. I don't think that's the case. But uh, we'll see. Avengers Endgame, really psyched about that. And uh, check out Patrick Willems' video essays on the topic. I will check that out because yeah. I agree with him. It's like an yes. hour It's like an hour long, but it's well, well worth the time. Um, so, <laughs> it's another hour long I have to spend with the Avengers people when I am already writing the three hours with this movie. But well, I think that's a great attitude, Devendra. We'll see. We'll <laughs> see. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, okay. So, Devendra, what have you been watching this week? Oh, a, a couple things. Not Avengers. No more Marvel. Um, <laughs> I, I, I saw... you, know, you know, the only reason why uh-huh. your attitude on Avengers is tolerable is because uh, when we review Avengers Endgame, <laughs> Jeff Kanata is going to be here. And you just know oh, yeah. that it's going to be the best film be he's seen in his entire life, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so Just I, I think it's be nice. phoning it in from the afterlife because you know the movie will have struck him dead. Like it is, <laughs> it is. I don't know how he's gonna deal with that movie. I think it's gonna be, you know, it, it will be like the great uh, difference of yin and yang, and I'll probably be somewhere in the middle. So I mean, uh, I I want, I hope the movie is good. That's all. It's just I am, I'm not looking forward to this whole hype cycle. I'm not looking forward to like a lot, a lot of this anticipation leading up to it. I just want to get it done. I want to watch this thing. All right, I'm I'm excited about it too. Uh, all right, Devin, what have you watched this week? <laughs> uh, I saw High Life, the new Claire Denis film, uh, which is I, I think unlike any of her other films, I believe it's her first English language film. Uh, stars, you know, people, um, you know, big name stars like Robert Pattinson and Julia Binoche, who I think has also been in some of other her other stuff. Uh, it's a very strange surreal sort of take on a sci-fi movie. It's ostensibly about a group of, uh, you know, um, prisoners who were sentenced to death, who were put on a spaceship headed towards a black hole. Um, and that's the deal they made uh, to, you know, help with science. Uh, there will be some experiments done on them and also just to like study them and I, I guess see what's going to happen. It's not really a film about plot. I think that's true of a lot of Denise films. Um, but it's uh, it's really interesting. I think her imagery is always pretty evocative. Uh, I haven't, you know, I haven't really kept up with a lot of her work, but I do remember like I had seen something of hers back in college and it kind of stuck with me. Um, it is. It feels like you know if Sunshine, Danny Boyle's Sunshine, is a movie about like humanity facing the end of the world, and we have to band together and do this thing and save the world. Uh, and it ends kind of on a happy note. Uh, this movie feels like the follow up to that, where you know humanity is just fucked, and how do we how do we kind of survive as a society in the face of absolute desolation? Um, basically in the face of a black hole, like how do you rebuild society? I think that aspect of it is uh, kind of fascinating. It is certainly a weird movie, like a lot of her things from what I hear. Um, there is uh, There are things I'd want to mention here that feel like they're spoilers, but I've seen them mentioned in other re- reviews, so I-, I don't know. Let me just say, this is a you know Claire Denis space movie starring Juliette Binoche, 
where there is a thing called the fuck box and it is a prominent thing in the movie it is exactly what it sounds like and i'll leave it at that like that, that this movie is exploring i think a lot of ideas around morality and sexuality and you know society on the edge of civilization if there's no law if there's no rules um you know how do you exist as humans I found it fascinating and beautiful, and there, there's a lot of great stuff in this film. Uh, I can't wait to watch it again. Uh, I will say, don't go in expecting it to be a typical sci-fi movie, because it's certainly not that. All right, well, that's High Life, and uh, I've actually heard great things about it. I, I've seen the screenshots from the trailer, and it looks, uh-huh. it looks amazing. Um, so I'm looking forward to checking it out. Also, you got to give it to Robert Pattinson. I mean, the dude just... Uh, after he uh, did the Twilight franchise, he, he could probably mm-hmm. have converted that equity oh, into something much more lucrative than what he's doing with his career right Both now. him right. and Kristen Stewart like are doing great like indie films, yeah. and uh, they're great actors. They're choosing so. like these smaller right. indie films, right? That like uh, have probably very limited financial upside, mm-hmm. but they're interesting. They probably right? also don't need to work again for the rest of their lives, so <laughs> you know. They, they're free to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They get to do it, yeah. So, um, All right, and uh, so that's High Life, and it's playing in limited release right now. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to checking it out. It's actually playing in Seattle. Uh, Devinder, you've been watching some stuff on HBO as well, right? Lots of HBO stuff. It is the whole new season of HBO. So we have Game of Thrones is back. And uh, I, I guess, Dave, I'm not sure how much you're willing to say about this uh, outside of your Game of Thrones podcast. Uh, but I liked, uh, you know, I liked the premiere. Um, it feels like you know, characters are actually in the same place for once. That feels like an improvement for a series <laughs> where people are, have always been continents apart. So there's a lot of this like fan serviceness happening where you're just happy to see people greet each other because they say you haven't seen each other since like season one or something. So I'm digging that. Um, and I think the political intrigue that they're building up is really interesting too. I just hope uh, my worry is that like they are so limited in terms of episodes for the season, it's like what, seven or eight, right? Uh, Where six, actually, six episodes. Oh man, six. But some are going to be extra long. Yeah. I'm just worried, like, uh, do they have enough time to really wrap this thing up? Well, I have noticed in the later seasons where it feels like the show is just getting to be a spectacle kind of mess. Like, it is more about the spectacle than it is characters talking to each other, which is something it used to do in the early seasons and I really oh. enjoyed. Uh, I'd recently rewatched the pilot and just the first scene of the series of like that one soldier going into the North and like being confronted by a white Walker. It is so, it just feels so like, um, I don't know, just so like deliberate. And so uh, it takes its time to really get to where it's going. Whereas now I think between last season and probably this one, it feels like the series is just, you know, trying to race itself to the end. Uh, I hope there's time. I hope like it, it, it takes time to really devote, uh, you know, give us give these characters their due. I don't want it to be sort of like a Marvel situation where we're just like racing to kind of finish up these storylines. Well, I have some bad news, Devinger. The show we fell in love with in season one is basically gone. You know, yeah, it's gone. Uh, <laughs> it's gone forever. It's not coming back. Um, but uh, I I thought the uh, season premiere was solid, like pretty good. You know, I give it like a B plus. Uh, definitely, some stuff was very rushed. The Theon stuff was very rushed, right? Mm-hmm. For, as an example, um, but as as with you, I loved how we get to see these characters reunite. And yeah. uh, I mean, eight years, you know, eight, eight, years. eight to nine years, right? Of like just 
characters who haven't seen each other since season one finally getting to see each other again. Um, and all that uh, character development, all those character development chickens coming home to roost, mm-hmm. uh, it's a beautiful thing. So uh, I am a fan so far and uh, very excited for uh, the season to come. So uh, curious to hear to see how they're going to end a franchise yeah. that is really like uh, in its nature kind of unendable, right? Like <laughs> it's it's very like I don't know how they're going to end it in a satisfying way. Um, so anyway, isn't there there's like a prequel series too that they're setting up or something, right? Yeah, there's prequels, but those are like years. That's years away, you know. Like it's a I whole don't, thing. Who knows? Like we will have lived lifetimes between now and when that's like who knows if it'll even come out like it's, yeah that's true a lot could happen between now and then so um, i will say it is um i'm looking forward to what is supposedly the longest battle ever filmed or something like that like we'll that see. sounds fun yeah it's gonna be a whole episode this one battle i'm down with that uh okay so you've been watching game of thrones on hbo and you've also uh-huh. been watching barry season two which i've been watching as well right so good so i think barry is just it is such a perfect show because it's a you know it's a great you know center it, it, it's a great way to like uh for Bill Hader to kind of show off what he does best like his peculiar style of comedy but I think it it's also about so much more it is really about these characters like trying to find themselves and define themselves you know in a in a world that doesn't quite where they don't really fit in uh I will say it's just it continues to be funny Noho Hank great as always. I hope the series, um, you know, never really loses what makes it special. So if that means we only get a few seasons, uh, so be it. I just, I, it is so perfect. I want to rewatch these episodes again and again. It's, it's actually, uh, arguably, you know, I read this article after season one ended about how like it's, it's so good that you actually kind of want it to end in the sense yeah, that like yeah. you want it to go out on top. And yep. that's one of the challenges I think is going to happen. This Barry season two, like uh, I'm sorry, Barry was recently renewed for season three, right? So. And uh, one of the challenges of Barry is this guy is constantly imperiling himself. Right? Like, so you need to <laughs> yeah. keep this character alive. And as time goes on, I'm curious, like, how plausible it's going to be that this guy is continuing to be alive. You know, um, so I think that is the biggest challenge of the show. Uh, so that's Barry season two. I'm really yeah. enjoying it so far, and I'm I'm just hoping that they they like are able to keep the premise under control. Uh, mm-hmm. Because season one was really perfect, I thought. Yeah. And it, it two, is like yeah. it feels like a magic trick, or it feels like a, an acrobatic, you know, sh- sequence you're watching. It's like uh, they're they're balancing a sword on their tongue, and they're like they're like on a unicycle. And can they can they keep <laughs> this up? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but I really question. enjoy watching the story right now. Uh, yeah, there's that. So watch Barry, everybody, if you haven't so far. There's also one other thing I want to mention, Dave. There's yeah, go ahead. time. Uh, I saw Guava Island, the mm. new Donald Glover thing, which is, I believe, an Amazon uh, short. It's kind of like a short film because it's only like an hour long. It's an hour long. Uh, it's but, streaming on Prime Video right now. Yeah, yeah, it's streaming on Prime Video. This uh, stars Donald Glover, written by Donald Glover and his brother, I believe. Uh, also co-stars Rihanna, Letitia Wright. It is sort of like it, it is a beautiful Caribbean fairy tale in a way. It's also kind of a musical because there are, there are a couple like mu- uh, video sequences in there. It reminds me of like when um, groups would just like, even like Michael Jackson, they would like make long things that are basically like long music videos. It is beautiful. It features the West Indies, you know, wonderfully it's filled with color and sound. I just loved it completely. 
um, as somebody who's actually, you know, from the West Indies, I love seeing this representation there too. Like just, this is the sort of thing I don't, I don't really think we're seeing much on TV or in film screens. I would love for Caribbean cinema to become more of a thing. And this is, it's a good way to showcase that environment and kind of the music and the people down there. And I have to say, this thing also just looks beautiful too. It's directed by Hiro Murai who's done most of Atlanta for Donald Glover and also has directed some of the best Barry episodes and it's shot in four by three. It looks like it's shot on vintage film too. Like it has a great seventies look to it. You can see the grain of the film. The colors just feel a little extra saturated in the way that seventies movies kind of were just has a great sense of place and being. So yeah, I enjoyed watching it. Um, Just check it out, especially if you like, the like artistic leaps that Donald Glover is taking. This thing is so different than Atlanta, but at the same time, it feels completely, uh, you know, aligned with everything he's doing. So definitely check it out. It's a ton of fun. That's Guava Island. It's streaming right now on prime video. Uh, so I want to mention a couple things that I've been watching as well. I do want to give a programming note, by the way. So we, we mentioned that Jeff Kanata is not here today. Um, I, I have a feeling that, uh, we're, we're entering a, a time in the slash filmcast where the, uh, the month of May in particular, there's going to be probably yeah. some interesting configurations of the slash filmcast. Yeah. Uh, you know, so just like people should be aware. And in fact, I have a feeling Jeff Kanata is probably going to appear in this episode in the form of an oh. ad. Is my oh guess boy. is what's going to happen. Um, I think I think that might happen, but if it doesn't, then this will just be completely random. Uh, but uh, yeah, so just want to mention that, like, hey, uh, we're going to have some interesting guests. But the, like, sometimes it'll be Devendra and Jeff, and sometimes it'll be me and Jeff, and me and Devendra, and so on and so forth. Because May is like a pretty busy month for all of us, so uh, just something to be aware of as we head into the summer movie months. I'll mention a couple things real quick. Uh, I had a chance to see You're the Worst. I marathoned You're the Worst. Uh, mm-hmm. The final season on FX. Nice, nice. Yeah. Have you have you finished the show? I haven't finished. I'm about like halfway through the final season. It's good, still great. It's a great show, and um, it's a show that really like helped me. You know, like it's it's mm-hmm. weird to say it this way, but like it's a show that helped you embrace your terribleness. Is that what you're saying? So like, the characters yeah. in You're the Worst are in fact terrible people, right? As the title implies. And they are they are they are essentially caricatures of terrible people, right? They, it's like <laughs> many yeah. of them entitled have, millennials, like right, right. They're working these jobs where they're not really working that much. It's many so of them have like uh, almost no redeeming qualities. Yeah, uh, but it's clear it's clear that they're exaggerated versions of people, right? So it's not like these people actually exist in the real world, or you know, if they do, they're they're very rare. Uh, but I, I think the the show holds up a mirror to its audience and, and invites them to like wonder uh, what 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 are the maladaptive ways that you approach relationships, right? What are the uh, what are the ways you approach relationships that are really unhealthy? What are the unhealthy ways of thinking you have? And um, uh, it, it kind of invites you to to see those aspects of your psyche play out on screen in like this kind of sitcom style uh environment now of course the movie the the show is actually very beautiful it's a single camera show every episode's half an hour and i'm not doing a very good job of selling how funny it is it's very amusing um but uh i I liked how it explored modern relationships in a way that was very brutally honest smart witty uh and yeah just just very funny so it recently concluded its final season so the series finale recently aired. 
Uh, and I'll, I, I'm not going to say anything about the final episode other than, other than to say that it is one of the shows that sticks the landing. Like it okay. is, it is a show right. where the final episode is perfect, right? That's and great. Um, that's yeah, that's that, that's very rare to see, especially for a show that's five seasons long. Um, mm-hmm. But they did it, and uh, it, it really wrecked me uh, that final episode. So oh, boy. I would really yeah. uh, uh, the whole show I think is available on Hulu and FX now. Um, I, unfortunately, there's no Blu-ray. I'm actually pretty upset about that because it's it's mm-hmm. one of the few TV shows that I would feel very good about like buying the whole series on blu-ray and owning it yeah um, there, there's one episode in the season that i've seen like where they go to like this uh this summer house somebody's like mansion in la and it's shot in like a classical like european uh you know uh highfalutin film type mm. thing like it's it's just shot very differently than the rest of the series but it looks amazing yeah yeah the whole sh- the whole series looks amazing so mm-hmm. uh anyway i i really love you're the worst good stuff, I, good stuff. have you, you seen the out, rest yeah. of catastrophe by the way dave I have seen it. I'm a big, I'm yeah. a big fan of that show. Um, it's all good. Streaming on Prime Video. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> so that's what I've been watching. You're the worst on FX and Hulu. I think it's on Hulu. Uh, and you, you can also buy it on video on demand. I also have had a chance to see the new Twilight Zone. I saw the first three episodes of Twilight yeah. Zone. And I think it's great. And I think it uses uh, the... Um, sci-fi and these kind of mm-hmm. interesting premises to explore to, to do social commentary right which is really great like the most recent episode called replay uses the concept of a camcorder that can rewind time to mm-hmm. portray the fraught relationship between african-american uh, uh african-americans and police in the united states yes. and yeah uh, i thought it was just very smart and uh really well done and love the first two episodes as well um, one of which is about Kumail Nanjiani as a comedian, uh, one of which is about Adam Scott as a uh, true crime podcast obsessed nutso. Um, the podcast stuff is hilarious. Although yeah. It's also a remake of the famous um, Shatner yeah. episode, too. With Terror at 20,000 feet. Is that what it's called? Yep. yep. Terror at 20,000 feet. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So uh, I'm really loving this show. Oh, Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Sorry, is, is what the name yeah. of that episode is. Um so and, loving that that is a strong word, Dave. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say I, I think replay is a great episode. That is actually up there among like showing what the Twilight Zone it can is in do. the pantheon of Twilight. Yeah, Zone. yeah. I did not. The first episode felt like weak sauce to oh, me. Really? Like, the comedian episode. Not, like it didn't really it didn't really amount to much. It did feel like one of those things where you know the Twilight Zone universe is just like fucking with this one guy for <laughs> for no apparent reason other than to be like, ha ha. Be careful what you wished for. The second one. Well, um, hold, hold, on, hold on, hold on, yeah. hold on. Before yeah. we move on, like I just like, gotta uh-huh. say, I disagree completely. You know, like I think that the the what one thing that that episode illustrates really well is the idea that like once you create art or once you create art that is derived from your own life and you set it free into the world, uh, it no, it kind of in some really potent way no longer belongs to you. Sure. And uh, I think that's a powerful concept and rendered beautifully in the episode. I love the concept. The I, yeah. love the concept. I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't think that there's, there's a lot going on with that episode. Like the thing is like, you know, also coming into the series right after seeing us and seeing like Jordan Peele attached to it. Like it, I don't feel like it's up to the same level that we're expecting because he's also he's not writing these episodes. You know, he's narrating. He's being the Rod Serling stand in. 
Um, and doing but, so you know, very, very ably, in my opinion. I think he's right. great. He's great as the narrator. The second episode was certainly better than the first, uh, just to see Adam Scott freaking out on the plane. Um, I also think it's kind of uh, the setting there is kind of funny, too, because I, I think a lot of uh, media today, there's, you know, there are fears around Middle Eastern looking people on planes. And certainly a lot of stories today are focused on like how people are afraid of that. Whereas this uh, that episode was about a white guy freaking out on a Middle Eastern airline. I found it kind of hilarious. Um, but yeah, this rewind, I think it does so much more. The last episode, at least. Uh, replay, I think. Yeah. Replay, um, yeah. Uh, but the Twilight Zone. So uh, I think it's uh, CBS All Access is like slowly kind of building uh-huh. its uh, bona fides as like a really like kind of must subscribe to, to, for me. For me. For you. C- Wait, CBS are you All watching Action. Star Trek Discovery? I'm not. I'm, I haven't been. I've heard it's great, though. So that's the thing I need to get into. But I've heard like. Did you they, subscribe to All Access for the Twilight Zone? Game? I did. I did. Come on. Between I've been talking about the good fight, between the good fight years. and Star Trek and the Twilight Zone, and then like future Star Trek series, I uh-huh. think it's like really gonna just like uh, like yeah. that that that's gonna really grab my attention, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, it, is, anyway. it is it's certainly like once these seasons end, I think it's gonna be a great bingeable deal for a lot of people. I will also say like I don't know if this show is worth subscribing to all access for the good fight. The good fight continues to be like the single best I think um, response to the Trump administration and to politics today. Like it, it is amazing. And I think you'd love Star Trek, Dave. Let me know when you start watching that. I will check it out. And finally, yeah. I saw Afterlife, the new Ricky Gervais series on Netflix. I think Jeff talked about this last week, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, he, I think he really liked it. I remember, recall him like enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Am I right about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's solid, um, but it is also a, another six part British series <laughs> where Ricky Gervais uh, plays a raging asshole who yep. is slowly redeemed over the course of uh, six episodes, and then in doing so, also kind of uh, falls in love with uh, Ashley Jensen. <laughs> oh, okay, great. <laughs> Which, uh, great. if that sounds like the exact plot of extras, that's because it is. Um, <laughs> so it's it's very similar in some ways, but I, I do think that uh, what's what's interesting about Afterlife. I, I find an interesting part of Ricky Gervais's works is that uh, he is such a raging asshole in uh, like his most recent comedy specials, for instance. <laughs> Humanity, yeah. his most recent comedy, it, like yeah. he 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 comes across as a very needy asshole, uh-huh. um, and like that's part of his persona. And he'll say like, "Oh, that's because I'm trying to be," uh, but it, it, <laughs> that doesn't mean I need to enjoy it. Whereas, like in Afterlife. It's a very, very hopeful, you know, humanistic message. It's very like gentle, hopeful, kind, po- like positive and optimistic. It <laughs> resembles nothing like the char- the the, the yeah. character that he plays in his stand-up special uh, for Netflix, uh, Humanity. This, and- this is what I told Jeff, by the way, is that I don't know if I can – I can't accept this art from you, Ricky Gervais, <laughs> because – it is like the complete opposite of how you are in your specials, but also like just real life, just seeing how this guy like responds to situations in real life too. Like I cannot trust this art. It feels like somebody trying to, you know, play act to be human and how to empathize. I think like, yeah. Mm. Uh, well, in any case, yeah, I think your relationship to Ricky Gervais is really going to inform how much you enjoy Afterlife. Uh-huh. I thought it was a decent entry. I didn't actually think it was. I don't think it's as good as The Office. I don't think it's as good as Extras. 
Um, but there is some funny stuff in here, and it is ultimately hopeful and, and positive, and I, I think we do need more of that in our lives. Um, so that's Afterlife, and it's six episodes, 30 minutes each. There is going to be a second season, uh, and it's on Netflix right now. So that's what I've been watching this week. Cool. Before we get into the review portion of the podcast we got to thank all the people who donated to the slash filmcast this week big thanks to matthias billishu and sororialist as well as james thomas for subscribing at the rate of two dollars per month uh big thanks also to eric pratt and tish fitness gave a very generous donation to us this week if you want to support what we do here on the podcast, you can go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash filmcast. Or go to slashfilm.com, click on the slash filmcast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Um, and you can uh, donate to the show. Help us to defray the cost of putting it on, seeing movies. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. Of course, you should never donate if it in any way causes you hardship. Uh, but if it is non-impactful for you to donate to us, we always appreciate people throwing money our way. Thanks so much. Let's get on to our review of Pet Cemetery. I remember my birthday party. Church was out on the road. And everything went black. It's okay now. Are you back? Back from where? There's a place, Rach, brings things back. Oh, you got Are you happy, Mommy? I should never have shown you that place. But you did. If you cheat death, there's a price to be paid. I needed more time with her. Sometimes dead is better. That was from the trailer of Pet Cemetery, uh, the latest incarnation of Stephen King's classic tale. I'm going to read the plot summary of Pet Cemetery online. Dr. Lewis Creed and his wife Rachel relocate from Boston to rural Maine with their two young children. The couple soon discover a mysterious burial ground hidden deep in the woods near their home. When tragedy strikes... Lewis turns to his neighbor, Judd Crandall, setting off a perilous chain reaction that unleashes an unspeakable evil with horrific consequences. What a nice little uh, summary there. Yeah. Uh, joining us today on the Slash Filmcast to review a Pet Cemetery, she is a writer whose work has appeared at Fangoria, Birth Movies Death, and Rue Morgue. Ariel Fisher, welcome to the Slash Filmcast. Ariel, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, I discovered Ariel's work uh, a couple months ago when she published a piece at Birth Movies Death entitled, Obviously, The Last Jedi's Throne Room Fight Scene is About Online Dating, uh, which is <laughs> yes. about the, the Last Jedi that. and that big yeah. throne room fight scene with all, all the red curtains and all the, the Praetorian guards and everything. Uh, and yeah. uh, apparently, it's about <laughs> online dating, which I didn't, I didn't recognize that at the time that I saw it. Uh, but it's it's been true all along. Ariel, can you... Do you mind summarizing the, the the main gist of this article in like a few sentences? Well, basically what happened was everybody was celebrating the one year anniversary and I rewatched that scene. And I'm going, damn, this is really hot. And then you start thinking about 
everything that they go through in the film. And it's basically a whole lot of back and forth, kind of some gaslighting stuff's going on. Kylo sure. Ren's trying to kind of backhanded compliment her yeah. into submission. Here's my pecs pics, basically. Like, look at me. Exactly. It's great. Exactly. Nudes are GTFO. But, you know, it just kind of spirals out of control until eventually they meet up and, you know, they have this whole date that's basically the throne room fight scene. And, you know, there's some outperformance of one another, and it's this yeah, it's the just, climax of yeah. the relationship. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Very literally, in more ways than one. <laughs> All right. Well, people can check that out at Birth Movies Death, and uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. But Ariel, it's great to have you on today. And Pet Cemetery. This is a a, a movie that is a uh, I guess it's a reboot remake, right, of uh, the Stephen King story. Pretty much, uh, and yeah. Uh, of course, like the original 1989 film is a movie that uh, ha- has been in many people's past. Uh, Devendra sounds like you've seen the original Pet Cemetery, directed by okay. Mary Lambert. Um, yeah, and is it Lambert or Lambert? I'm not Lambert, sure. But... One of those, yeah. yes, one and, of those. Uh, Lambert. Uh, oh, right. And Perfect. Ariel, you've seen that <laughs> film as well, right? So, like, I guess before we dive into this new Pet Cemetery, like, what is the place of that Pet Cemetery? In your mind, like, is it something you revere? Is it something you're a fan of? Uh, or is it like kind of a, a subpar one of these Stephen King films? What do you think? Well, I mean, honestly, I th- <laughs> I'm probably going to piss a bunch of people off. But uh, I mean, I, I like it a lot. There's parts of it that I love. And there's a lot mm-hmm. that I really dislike about it. It's pretty cheesy. Um, I think the actual death scene in the film is... It's surprisingly emotional. It always makes me cry, uh, which is, again, I say surprising because anyone who's seen who's seen it before knows it's pretty melodramatic. <laughs> but um, and that's, I think, putting it a little lightly. But uh, in terms of King adaptations, I, you know, all apologies to Miss Lambert. I don't think it's one of the best. Um, and I think it fails in some of the ways that this new one fails, which obviously we'll get into. But it so it mid, definitely mid holds a very specific tier, place. Mid to lower tier King adaptation, in your opinion. Yeah. And we have Fred Gwynn, who's basically the only human being who will ever be allowed to play Judd Crandall. So, mm, yeah, perfect. he ruined that for everyone. How about you, Devendra? Any thoughts on the original? You know, this is a movie. I'm surprised that, uh, Dave, you haven't seen it. I have not. And yeah. I really, you've only seen it recently, right? I grew up with this movie. And maybe that's just weird. And maybe like, I don't know, that says something about like the lax uh, movie restriction policies in my household. But I remember seeing this movie when I was like six or seven uh, with my parents at home. It was probably on HBO or something. And, you know, I haven't really thought about this movie much since then and certainly since the 90s. And I just rewatched it this week and it struck me like how indelible so much of the imagery from this movie is at least like, it's certainly not a perfect movie. It's a bit hokey. It's a bit corny. Uh, there's some ghost stuff that I think is just uh, played a little, little too much. And uh, I'm not a fan of the lead either. Like the, the father, the actor who plays the father. Um, but I think Mary Lambert's imagery is tremendous. Like there are some, there are some sequences that seeing them now made me as afraid as I was, you know, when I was like a kid, seeing this particular image or something for the first time and there's some stuff i'm gonna bring up in spoilers um but it's just so many of those things like you know there are bits of this movie that just feel iconic to me maybe because of when i saw it but also because it feels different than most horror movies and certainly most stephen king movies uh but yeah we'll we'll get into that down the line Uh, i just have to say like this movie i guess 
it's something I distinctly remember. And that is certainly a part of like how I went into this new one. Yeah. So I, I want to say that I have not seen the original Pet Cemetery, but I have seen the series that Dale Midkiff starred in in uh, <laughs> the early 1990s called Time Tracks. <laughs> did you guys ever see that movie? Oh, that of course. Time Tracks? Yeah. Uh, I did not. So I'm, I'm going to read the, the plot summary for Time Tracks. In the year 2193, <laughs> over 100 criminals become fugitives of law enforcement by traveling back in time. 200 years using a time machine <laughs> called Tracks. Darian Lambert, played by Dale Midkiff, is a police detective of that period who is sent back to 1993 to apprehend as many fugitives as possible. He's assisted by the Specified Encapsulated Limitless Memory Archive, or SELMA, an extremely small <laughs> but powerful computer disguised for the mission as a credit card. Anyway, and 90s oh sci-fi shows were amazing. <laughs> yeah, that show they was really awesome. tried hard. That, that show great. was awesome. So, uh, yeah. I have seen many hours of Dale Midkiff uh, on television, but unfortunately, none of it was in the Pet Cemetery film. Uh, instead, definitely Time Tracks was more my jam back then. Um, but in any case, let's fast forward to the present day. Uh, let's time travel, as it were, to the present day and talk about the new Pet Cemetery. So, Errol, you said kind of that these two Pet Cemeteries had similar failures, but overall, what were your thoughts on the new film? Overall, I feel like the new film is. It's a solid effort. Uh, I think they try to do something really unique and very different with the um, with the tone of the film. They tried to make it look a little bit darker, and that's actually – unfortunately, my screening of it was a little tarnished. Thanks, Cineplex, Young and Eglinton in Toronto. You ruined it for me a bit. It was overly dark, so apparently <laughs> there's bits and pieces of it that I didn't actually see fully. I, I'm hearing about this like an hour ago, so clearly there was nothing I could do about it. But um, I think it's a solid effort. I think uh, the – they tried to wink at the audience a little bit who might be familiar with the original film, which was really cute. They made, it's hard to do it without, I know we're going to save a lot for the spoiler section, but ultimately I think it fails the same way the original fails, which is the same way a lot of King adaptations fail in general, which is trying too hard to make it adhere to very strict horror tropes mm -hmm. instead of recognizing that the predominant horror themes are actually just surrounding, for instance, in this case, death itself. King's horror usually encompasses very human horrors, very human problems and concerns. He's, you know, a blue collar writer. He was a blue collar writer when he wrote Carrie and from the time he started and he still is. And a lot of that comes down to the human experience and, the things that horrify us about that. And I think this film, like its predecessor and many others that are adaptations of King's work, hinge a little too much on the spookables and don't have enough faith in themselves to adhere tonally to the source material. And I think it, this film, like many others, commits that sin, as opposed to something like any of the adaptations by Frank Darabont, for instance, mm. that are tonal perfection, and even some of which were done so well that King said to him, I wish I'd thought of that, right? I mean, right. ultimately, <laughs> the goal of an adaptation isn't necessarily to mimic word for word, but rather just to take the source material and bring it to life. And that doesn't necessarily need to be a direct copy. 
So I think is your is your issue with this film that it kind of uh, adheres too closely to the original text to its detriment as a film? Is that what you're saying? Or? No, it. Devendra said it before. You can't really consider this film without considering its predecessor because yeah. it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's weirdly and more of a remake of that film than it is an adaptation of the book. It feels like exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Like they did different things with it that take other material from the book that Mary Lambert's film didn't. Um, but they also make changes to the book that aren't necessarily benefiting the story in the long run. They don't adhere. They adhere too close to certain specific items in the book while not trying to tonally bring it to life, I think is the problem. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that in the spoilers. Uh, Devendra, overall thoughts on the new Pet Cemetery? Yeah. I mean, I think this is, I, I think you're right, Ariel. Like this feels like a solid effort, except there's just a lot holding it back from being, you know, very good or even great. Mm-hmm. Um, and my heart, I think is always going to be with that first movie just because of how I saw it and when I saw it and it was kind of a formative thing for me. And honestly, because of that, watching this movie at certain points kind of made me angry because it did feel like they were winking a little too much, like at certain points, uh, when you're expecting like a certain stab or something to happen, <laughs> uh, the camera angle will be exactly the same way it was in the first movie. And they're just going to veer in the other direction, do something different. But it they did it so many times that it felt like I, I didn't know who they were making this movie for. Like, were they making it for people who liked the other movie and just wanted to be surprised that they took the story in another direction? I'm not quite sure. And, uh, you know, the story is always the heart of the story is about the, you know, the horror of what happens when a parent loses a child and how that destroys the family and can drive you insane. And I think that's inherently terrifying. Honestly, I was I was a little scared to get into this movie now uh now that i have a baby and it's mm-hmm. it's just the concept of that it just feels mind-numbing and insane to me so yeah i i think certain aspects of this movie work uh it's definitely moody i like jason clark more than i like uh what's his face the other guy bill midkiff uh, yeah time bill tracks, midkiff, time tracks. <laughs> i really like john lithgow in this movie even though he is no fred gwynn um the sort of like hard uh you know hard knock lifetime manor type thing like he he kind of gets sat down pretty good and i think the sense of like place in the wildness and weirdness of the woods is well done here too um it, it just didn't feel like this movie went far enough or did anything super inventive uh it kind of hinges on one big twist that that deviates from the original film and maybe the book i haven't read the book um but i think by hinging on that too it feels like they're leaning too much into it rather than just like trying to tell us a scary story, doing something more interesting or nuanced with this concept. Yeah. Uh, so I have zero context for anything you, you two are talking <laughs> about in terms of the original <laughs> book. I, I literally didn't even know what the plot of, of the book was going into wow. this uh, movie. Yeah. And I, I was, you know, tried to stay away from it. And I, I'm, I'm like, so all your life, Dave, you were just like, why are they spelling cemetery wrong? These people <laughs> are right. just. That's right. That's that's me. The, I ask that question every single time. I'm one of those people on Twitter that tweeted at like Fandango and was like, "What? Why? Hey, this is really embarrassing, Fandango, but you spelled cemetery wrong." Um, no, I I knew about the cemetery misspelling, but I didn't uh, I didn't know anything about the plot of the film. So I went in completely fresh, and I would say that I, overall, I, I didn't like this movie very much. I think there are uh, if I could say two things about the movie that I I didn't really like. 
One of them is that uh, we've talked about this before on the Slash Filmcast about how we like horror movies where the characters in the movie are smarter than the audience, right? Like, are smarter. Don't, don't than... move towards the noise, people. Slowly. <laughs> yeah, uh, are, are, they're they're smarter than you are, right? Like, the, you uh, if, imagine yourself in that situation, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, "What would I do in that situation?" Right. And uh, the character does something even smarter than that, and you're like, "Oh man!" Like, I wish I thought of that. Like, that's so cool that the the character thought of that. Um, in this, by the movie... way, shout out, shout out to Mike Flanagan movies because I feel like in general. His stuff is always that sort of extra smart, like understanding the tropes of horror and then going beyond it. Exactly. Um, he knows how to adapt King, and mm-hmm. he does it really, really well. Yep, Mike Flanagan, this is uh, Mike Flanagan behind Ouija, Origins of Evil, and Gerald's Game uh, on Netflix right now, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, And, and also Haunting of Hill House. And uh, Haunting of like. Hill House, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yes. Uh, uh, so, yeah, uh, and, and quite the opposite in The New Pet Cemetery, where characters do things that progressively become dumber as the, the movie continues. Right? Let me look behind this mirror, okay? Because there's a strange, <laughs> yeah, terrifying like, noise in my childhood admitting from it. Yes, yeah. It's like, uh, you know, uh, the the speech that, what is it, Drew Barrymore gives at the beginning of Scream 1, and how, like, oh, the, the person's always running up the stairs when they should be going out the back door. You know, like, that's basically mm-hmm. what characters in this film do metaphorically for the entire second half of the film. So that's one strike against it. And then another thing is, like, I would say most of the movie, the the look of it is, is pretty good. Like it, it convincingly depicts kind of uh, rural life in Maine, uh, and and a lot of it is is very beautifully done. But many of the horror aspects of it uh, feel like they walk a very fine line between silly and scary, and often come out on the silly side <laughs> of it. Right? Like there's some scenes I'll discuss in spoilers, but there's some scenes that are like. When they occur, you're supposed to be scared, and I, I just think it looks very silly. There's some parts like the pet cemetery of the title itself that looks like just the look of it aesthetically is pretty rough, in my opinion. Like it looks uh, fake, for lack of a better word. And um, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I can get into yeah. it a little bit later, yeah. but like, yeah, the, these kids have no sense of set design and art. <laughs> you know? No, but I mean, no, no, you, you know, I'm not talking about that specific portion. Yeah, but yeah, and and I think that. Like quite many movies, right? Like thinking about like Jordan Peele's Us, for instance. You know, there's uh, uh, I'm gonna try to be as vague as possible, but there's like a scene when the tethered give a speech for the first time. It's early on in the film, and that move that scene could be extremely silly, but like the commitment to the bit, the performance, all that stuff kind of sells it. And there's a lot of that kind of stuff in this movie that it doesn't quite get sold in my opinion so honestly that may be also why it was harder to stomach this movie too because it's like how dare you release a half-baked horror movie when (laughs) us is out there right now still kicking ass like Mm. what are you doing Mm. come Mm. on well you can't you can't fault them for trying but i understand what you're saying it's it definitely doesn't compare favorably right so uh ariel were you gonna say something to your point devendra it feels very much like it's I don't want to say it's a misunderstanding of what horror is. Clearly, these guys know what they're doing. But it's, I mean, and the other thing, too, is comparing something like this to anything by Jordan Peele is also kind of unfair because Jordan Peele's brand of horror is entirely different. Yeah. But 
there is a need to understand like this has this has been a discourse within the last few months, especially where people are, you know, writing articles. What is elevated horror? Are we looking at a new generation of elevated for of elevated horror? I uh, somebody had tweeted uh, a little while ago something that I quote tweeted that also went viral that was saying these four movies saved horror and it was the witch hereditary us and get out. And it's like, well, horror never needed to be saved. It's just always been multifaceted and very different and representing a broad spectrum of human emotion, empathy, and the human experience. And we don't always see all of it because people write horror off a lot. And Mm -hmm. I think this film could have been a lot more, but I feel like perhaps somewhere on the back end maybe producers got their hands in there a bit too much and thought no horror is supposed to be this do this Mm -hmm. as opposed to recognizing that you can make a horrific film and make a horror movie that's horrific that doesn't necessarily you know have the girl running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door (laughs) adhering to those tropes you know what Uh, i mean i see i see what you're talking about in terms of tropes now yeah Um, and and certainly by the way this movie is harder to stomach after hereditary which feels like it did a very similar concept, like the crux of what Hereditary is about and like the Mm -hmm. grief that that movie explores is so, it is so extreme. It is so like, and it does it in a way that honestly kind of shook me to my core because it came out of nowhere. We didn't really expect it. Um, Mm -hmm. And that movie is a much better exploration of like grief and parents losing a child it's it's a shame. I think it's even more of a shame that this movie came out because it is kind of the same thing. Hereditary feels more pet cemetery than this movie. Yeah. Uh yeah, actually, I fully agree with you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh I mean, I haven't seen the original Pet Cemetery or read the book, but I definitely think that this movie, Pet Cemetery, the new one, and and I assume the book and the the uh film, the other film, uh are intended to be like a metaphor about grief and mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think it did a particularly good job landing that metaphor, unfortunately. Like, I, I, I don't buy it. And uh, we can talk a little bit more about why that's the case in spoilers, which we will start talking about right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret want to be fooled let's talk about spoilers for pet cemetery and i mean i think uh, so before we get into the spoilers there's been some controversy online about the fact that uh, apparently they changed which child was killed right in which is the, a big deal in the yeah. new film right so it is in yeah. the new film it's the daughter that is killed right uh, and apparently in the original it was it was not the daughter right it was the the son it was the mm-hmm. son. It was Gage. And in the book, it's Gage as well. Ah. So that's that's something that was always there. And honestly, that switch in this film makes it feel really cheap because it feels like all they were doing was going for shock value. Huh. Mm-hmm. And I mean, but at the same time, it's it needs to be said, watching little Gage in his very strange funereal dress in the original film, walk around with a scalpel, you know, I'm going to get you. It, it's kind of hard to take him seriously as a threat because you uh-huh. could kind of just punt. You could kind of just punt the little bastard just and kick, it'd be fine. Kid. I mean, exactly. he, he really kick racked up a body count, though. Yeah, kick the baby. Um, <laughs> he racked up a body count in that little original film. And when I say like this movie, by the way, is just curbing from the original, like the whole like uh, the evil child slicing through the Achilles tendon 
of uh of you know dud that that was gage doing it and i think like maybe watching it as a kid too it was sort of like this thing where it's like oh man even even this tiny child can be frightening and i think there is something inherently weird about that even though it seems like this little thing is not a threat uh mainly because that first movie they did a really good job with the uh with the actual baby like i think yeah, mary lambert except for like, when he hit his head Except for when, oh man, that was you rough. remember that? Yeah, but th- there are definitely certain sequences where it just it feels almost real. Like they certainly replace the actor with a puppet <laughs> for for really brutal scenes. But the idea that this cute little thing can be murderous, I think, was conveyed much more effectively. Whereas in this movie, it's you know it's a preteen girl, and there's a lot you can mine there. But I don't think this movie does. It's nowhere near as creepy, I think, as the idea of like a toddler wielding a scalpel and just wandering around the house. Yeah. Well, I think it's kind of like a child's play situation, right? Like the the film series Child's Play, where when I watched Child's Play, uh, the the first rated R film I ever saw, I think, was Child's Play 2, if I recall correctly. And uh, that was pretty scary because at the time you think that actually might be possible for a doll to do. But then Mm. when you grow up, you realize, oh, like you could just kick the doll or, you know – uh, hold the doll down or you know like it's not like the doll has like the strength of a human although i guess right. in, it does in the movie but like eventually uh, yeah. <laughs> eventually right and yeah. uh but according to the director dennis widmeyer of the new film pet cemetery he says quote there was something about an eight-year-old and the psychology that she would have she would understand what happened to her on the road she would understand that she's dead and she would know how to not only physically kill a person but psychologically destroy them as well. It just gave another layer to it. End quote. So I think kids he, are evil. It, right. TLDR. He's, he's commenting on the fact that they made that change because it, it it's very difficult to have a baby be a killer, and then also like having an eight year old be uh, a killer. Uh, there's other things she can do other than just kill. Right. She can mm-hmm. um, psychologically destroy people as well. Uh, but it sounds like for both of you, Ariel and Devendra, that this change didn't really. Uh, do its intended trick, right? Like it didn't really well, do what it was supposed to. Errol, go ahead. I mean, the the big problem is is that it fails to recognize that the main theme of the film is that, well, I mean, the main theme of the book. And again, this film doesn't exist in a vacuum. We have to consider, to some extent, we have to consider its source material, which is both the original film and the book. And the book hinges largely on the horrors of death and loss, the horrors of losing a child, and also very fundamentally the fact that you may love them unconditionally, but sometimes parents really, really hate their kids. <laughs> and they can be a terror. They can make your life insane. They can make you want to pull out your hair. They can make you lose sleep and stop functioning like a normal human being. Like, let's be honest. There's a lot of stuff that comes out of horrible situations like postpartum depression and things like that, that people kind of look down their nose at. Oh, you're not supposed to say that you hate your kids sometimes. You're not supposed to say they piss you off or they annoy you. But the truth is, is that for many people, they do. And that's normal and healthy and okay. Like, you're never going to kill your kid. You're never going to do these things, right? Mm-hmm. But the book really taps into how you can resent your children and how that's a normal emotion for a human adult right. and that losing them is fearful. So in having Gage come back and be this real threat, it's the horror of watching, you know, your child come back to life, this other thing that's not themselves, but it's it's also 
really just watching the reincarnation demon child that you always thought your child was to an extent, I guess. And even beyond that, um, it starts to tap on, uh, well, this movie did a better job of adapting some of the book than the original film did in that it's not actually them that's coming back. It's a demon. It's some, mm -hmm. it's maybe a bit of the Wendigo. Like we get a little bit of this piecemeal. Admittedly, I didn't get all the way through the book, so I can't quite touch on what winds up happening. But ultimately, the impression that we're being given is whatever you bury there isn't coming back. It's something else using that corpse as a vessel. Mm. So he was never bringing his daughter back. Church never came back. Yeah. Something else came back through them. And that's how they knew all of the little details. That's how we got, you know, that facial recognition of Norma, Judd's wife, who, and that's an, a whole other thing. And well, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm talking too much. I'm not sure. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that uh, you're right, though, that this movie, like very uh, well said regarding the horrors of child raising and how a movie could theoretically tap into them. I, I don't think this movie really did that uh, no. at all, in, in my opinion. And, mm -hmm. and the thing that it was supposed to tap into, this idea that like this father is so racked with grief from his daughter's death, uh, I don't know that I bought that he would be so racked with grief that he would actually do this horrible thing. You know what I mean? Like, yep. uh, like yeah. that's the ultimate. That's the decision that the entire film hinges on. Is and he, he is so wrecked with grief. He's he's gonna go like at, at whatever the cost. He's gonna bring her back. And I just didn't believe that the relationship had been set up to be that way. And uh, th that's largely a fact, uh, a function of the fact that you don't really get to know the main character that much, or, or whoever exactly you know, the, the doctor <laughs> character. Right? Like you don't really know what makes him tick. Like adjectives. I, I struggle to come up with adjectives to describe his he's, character. He's Jason Clark as a leading guy again, which we've seen mm -hmm. plenty of times recently. You know, I read I will, this, I read I will this say cool I, article recently uh -huh. about uh, Jason Clark uh, for Vulture called uh, "In Praise of Jason Clark, Hollywood's Go-To Cuckold," and it's about how, like, in Aww. I think uh, five of the last eight movies he's been in, or whatever, like some some large percentage of the last movies he's been in, he he plays a cuckold, uh, like somebody whose wife cheats on him. Uh, mm -hmm. Which I thought was uh, like, what is it about Jason Clark's face that makes it seem like he's like an unsympathetic husband character uh, that he, he wants to play that character over and over again? Anyway, there's something about him. Anyway, sorry, yeah. didn't mean to interrupt. It, it is amazing when that happened to John Connor too. Like uh, nobody expected John Connor to be cuckolded, but Jason Clark, man. <laughs> and you want to talk happen. about. You want to talk about failures in marketing. Like, oh, God. Um, <laughs> what was I going to say? I, I think this movie actually does a better job than the original film of selling that sort of grief. Um, because you're right. The entire movie kind of hinges on that. Uh, this movie also avoids the even dumber, like a spoiler for the original Pet Cemetery, But the even dumber thing is that even after the whole business happens with the baby, evil baby killing everybody. Uh, in the first film, he he goes back and he buries his wife and, uh, just to do it all over again. And it leads well, to this great little twist ending. And I don't, you know, I never quite th that showed like the madness of that character, like sort of like uh, who uh, Jack from The Shining, like just being driven insane to the point where he is making crazy decisions and maybe he's being led by the demon or something. But I never quite bought that in the first movie. So, yeah, this is a huge failing of both films. The, they talk about this in the book, 
the the whatever the power is that's in the place beyond the deadfall, beyond the the actual pet cemetery on the Micmac burial burial ground. That power, once you go there, it influences the rest of your life and your decisions. Mm. So the reason why he mm. buries the cat, the reason why he buries uh, Gage there in the book is because it's reaching out to him and convincing him this is a good idea, despite yeah. the fact that yeah. he's had this long conversation with Judd, who's telling him about Timmy. I can't remember the last name, but the 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 one other human he knows about that was buried there. And it just... It, they don't touch on that at all. That's not clear in any way, shape, or form that the decisions that are being made are not being made by him completely. Like, he's being pushed by something. It almost feels and like we, they need, like, the Shining, like, a side sequences where he's they're just, like, talking to the ghost or something. Or, like, you know, <laughs> having this situation where they're physically embodied. And mm-hmm. th- then you see that influence happening. There's also a huge loss of character motivation, in my opinion. I think uh, in the book, one of the big things that we have is Judd's wife, Norma, is alive. Um, She suffers a heart attack during the earlier parts of the book and Lewis saves her. And that's Judd's motivation to help him bring church back from the dead. Oh, wow. Because you saved my wife. I have to do something for you. Rather than your child is just going to be sad that their cat is dead. (laughs) Exactly. Which feels so hollow in comparison. So, so weak. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you're going to do this is the big thing for me. I, I, I don't really give a shit about films being you know, word for word translations of their source material. I don't think that's the most necessary thing, but I think sticking to character motivation, tone, pacing, because like this, the book is supposed to take place over almost the better part of a year. And this feels, the first film feels like it's maybe two months. And this this one is like, that was sure an eventful week we had. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And you don't really get that weight or that sense of any kind of investment of time. Like the pacing feels weird. Character motivation is just all over the place. Like it just doesn't jive or make sense. I always refer to one of my absolute favorite adaptations is, and one of my favorite movies, and incidentally, one of my favorite books is The Age of Innocence, which uh, Scorsese adapted of all people. And it was perfection. And there were a ton of changes, but he brought it to the screen in terms of the sensation it elicits and its mm-hmm. pacing and its tone. And that's infinitely harder to do. It sometimes takes a lot more time, but it's ultimately the most worthwhile process. And this to me just doesn't do that. It also fails to understand Stephen King at his, at his core, which to be fair, Stephen King himself doesn't seem to understand with any adaptations he's had his hands for in. Sure, so sure. like he, he wrote the screenplay for the first pet cemetery movie too. So that was mm-hmm. one of the early ones he was involved with. So in knowing how much he hates the shining, it's like, I don't know <laughs> if we can really trust his opinion and his own work when it's translated to film. I, I don't know. Uh, uh, let me ask you guys this, by the way, like who do you think is the real villain of this movie? Because it's really, it, it, it based on the facts we see in this film and maybe they first film too, like, it's it's really kind of Judd. And it's also like the like uh the traffic uh laws of that little town, which uh <laughs> which do nothing to protect the families that live on this highway and this truck company. Blame that's the Arenko like, drivers. Yeah, exactly. And just, the truck's just barreling down. There's so there's so much going on here. 
Um, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I just think I, it's kind of funny. I, I think the yeah. I mean, the person who I was least sympathetic to is uh, the father character, the the doctor, because after he sees the cat being brought back to life and what <laughs> misery that wreaks upon their lives, he then goes back and is like, "Hey, I'm gonna this time. I'm gonna double down on this." Now, right. we, at this point, we said like virtually nothing good about this film. And there there are some decent scares in the film, right? So like, Mm -hmm. there's some decent jump scares. Like I, Mm -hmm. I I felt very, um, uh, I I was totally fine with how the jump scares played out. You know, there's some sometimes like the the number of jump scares, the character, the jump scares get really irritating in a film. But I thought like most of these jump scares were pretty earned. There's a very creepy moment that that pays off when uh, the daughter character, who by the way I think is awesome in this film, like the yeah. The uh, actress who plays the daughter, like her transition from being a normal girl to like undead version of herself uh, is very convincing uh, in every respect. And so I really, uh, really liked her performance. Um, And uh, I think uh, Jette Lawrence, is that that her name? Jette Lawrence? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So uh, she's great. And there's a moment early in the film when she's she's kind of brushing uh, Church's hair, the the cat's hair, and then like it's like getting stuck, like the comb is get the brush is getting stuck on her hair, and uh, it causes the cat to like lash out. Later on, that scene is repeated when Jason Clark's character is brushing her hair in the bathtub, and. Uh, it gets stuck, but the reason it gets stuck is because it's like caught on the these staples in her skull because presumably like they've done some uh, work to her skull uh, to make it look appropriate for a funeral. Uh, mm-hmm. And I thought that was like a very creepy moment. And so there's like a handful of, of solid moments like that. I, I'm partial to the last shot of the film actually, really, which is when the family mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, they, they, they return and they happen upon Gage in the car and you just know like Gage is going to get screwed over. And then Poor who Gage. knows what happens after that? A, a whole army of the undead, probably, right? That's what's going to happen <laughs> da, next. Da, 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 da. Um, By the way, yet another yet another thing where they're like, oh man, this first movie, sure had a great final shot. Uh, we, let's, let's do our own take on that. And um, Dave, I'm sorry to spoil this for you. Please, spoil uh, Because I, I, I think certain bits of the first movie are gangbusters. But yeah, the, the very end of the first movie, he goes back, he buries his wife. His, he just sits in the kitchen, waits for his wife to come back. And she appears, and she is like half decomposed. Her eyeball <laughs> is oozing. Her oh, face yeah. is like, it is great special effects work there. Uh, and then he just goes in for like, oh yeah, baby, I've been missing this. And he goes in <laughs> for the full-on kiss. Um, you know, so as a kid, I just imagined the grossness of like literally just making out with a corpse. But while she's kissing him, she reaches for a knife and we don't see what happens, but it just cuts to black after that. I, f- I think there is a sound, but I think that moment there, there, there's a lot of momentum there. Like there is, it, it is a surprise. It feels impactful. Whereas this one, it's like, well, they gather around the car. I guess we kind of expected them all. We kind of knew this was coming, right? We expected them all to be undead at this point and it just feels like they didn't whatever shot they landed on just felt kind of whiffed like it Mm. didn't feel particularly interesting we hear the car like is it the car did he did they unlock the car doors maybe let's see you hear the click click of that but it didn't feel like they actually did much there's no real expression on the kid's face and maybe that's one thing i also really enjoyed from the first movie because that that poor baby had some great on-screen moments of really selling the horror. There's a point in the first film where um, 
you know, the father finally like manages to stop the baby by injecting him with like um, a sedative or something. And the kid just walks away saying, not fair, not fair. And that that imagery, that tone has been stuck in my head my entire life. And you know, it, it's just like a really indelible image. Whereas this one's like, well, the kid's in the car and they surround the car. We're just <laughs> well, going to cut to black. OK, so Devendra, I hate that you've made me defend this film, but here we go. I mean, I think <laughs> if you accept the premise that this movie is about grief and how like grief will make you do horrible things and that like hanging on to the dead, literally, as is the case in this film, right? Hanging yeah. on to the dead uh, will become an infection, a cancer that destroys your whole family. Uh, then I think that last shot ultimately pays that off. Now I, th- I think it's like, hey, it's gotten to everyone else in the family, and like now it's finally yeah. going to like ruin. It's this more child. the tech. Like right. I like the idea of the shot. I think that it's the technique of the shot that I I wasn't particularly yeah, impressed yeah, with. Fair enough. And maybe yeah. it's also because we once again cut to black. And it's a cover of the Ramones' Pet Cemetery song because it's, Which... it's all this movie feels like it is is a cover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, yes, actually, that's a perfect way of putting it. And let's face it, it's I mean, good effort, but it's an inferior copy. Like the song, I mean, even just on its own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, to be fair, uh, I uh, I think that uh, I, I don't know that the movie lands the the grief message particularly well for reasons we've already discussed. Like you don't really know mm-hmm. what the dad's uh, me- like his goal is. There, there's just so many baffling plot aspects to this film. Okay, like for instance, mm-hmm. why didn't they make the mother character like the main character is that's what i didn't understand amy simons's character because she at least has stuff she needs to get over do you know what i mean uh whereas yeah. like the jason clark like what is his issue like, no, no, Dave, just... how about in the middle of the movie we stop everything and go over her backstory <laughs> right which seems completely tangential to everything that's happening here so yeah a c- couple issues with her backstory number one it's obvious like i think it's like kind of a very ableist message of like this person was disabled and therefore they're horrifying and disgusting right i mean that's that's the impression i got from yeah what certainly by the way they didn't they didn't fix anything from the first movie and they actually <laughs> they doubled down on that idea although i think i think the idea of a child taking care of somebody who's dying and like the unfairness of that and how like scary that could be to a child i think that's certainly something you can tap into uh but the design of the uh of zelda is is literally just a copy from the first movie so it's like yeah i I heard the first film was like much more into the whole like native american spirits thing which might have been like more offensive Um, and so maybe they dialed that back, but they kept the the kind of. No, ab- I feel like they talked about that more here. Honestly, oh, with yeah, the book and a everything. little bit they did. Yeah, they didn't even mention when to go in the first movie. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so anyway, they, also the scene when like the she he crashes down onto the dumbwaiter. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be scary, but I just thought it looked very silly. You know, like <laughs> she. It's uh, my my question is like, how did she get in there? And like, what oh, was go- yeah. like my, my, when that yeah. when that girl crashes down in the dumbwaiter? You're supposed to be like. Oh my gosh, that's horrifying! Like that's that's the reaction you're supposed to have, I think. Yeah. And instead, yeah. I just was like, "What is even happening? Like, how, how did that how did that happen? You know, how did she well, get in yeah. there? And how did she? You know, like that's that's what it was on my mind. And so I don't uh-huh. think it had the effect, right? Like I think it it's a little that. more dramatic than the first movie, I guess. Which is, the, you know, you see um, Zelda twisting in the bed, and she's like choking and suffocating, and that's it. She just kind of like chokes on the bed. Whereas this is much more. It, it's more of like a direct impact of something. 
uh, the wife character actually did. Yeah, you but know? like, like how? Like, yeah. how? It just. But you know, <laughs> crawled across the floor. Yeah, she like got, she tried up. to get her food and yeah. then instead yeah. ended up in the dumb way. You know, I think just... the mechanics of this feel like <laughs> you know, like uh, she reached in and fell in. Like yeah, you know, I, I could see how that works. That's not the part that doesn't work for me. Uh-huh. It's All more right. like you you are just copying again. You're just copying what came before. Give us something new. Which is the thing. They're not actually copying what came before. Yeah. This is completely new and totally different. And the 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 first film actually sticks a little bit closer because what happened was she was choking. But Rachel never went upstairs. She never went in to check on her. She just heard her throttling around and, and suffocating. As far as I remember, keep in mind, I'm recovering from a head injury, so I might be forgetting pieces just for the record. Yeah. But I... <sighs> The whole thing with that, and that gets a little complicated in and of itself, too, because the representation of Rachel's parents in the book <laughs> is pretty atrocious there. It's she's Jewish, number one. And to preface before I even get into any of this, I myself am a am Jewish. Um, her parents are represented as miserly Jews, the perfect the the not per- the, the the terrible example, like caricature that right. people have always put. Por- painted of jewish people king did that and he went full tilt he calls the keeper or yamaka a skullcap when he's at the funeral he paints him the father as being cheap he's the only character that gets referred to by their last name which he chose i can't remember if it's goldberg or goldfarb which i mean try a little harder please yeah <laughs> but and then and then rachel's judaism is completely erased so it's just this horrible man who he gets to pick on and point out that he's Jewish all the time. So mm-hmm. that's terrible, number one. Number two, we have Rachel, who as a child in the book was left alone. She was eight years old and she was left alone with her older, significantly older disabled sister to take care of her so that the parents could go out at night and go to a party. That's why she was at home. And so they're, car- fair, they're cartoonishly King... evil. The parents are cartoonishly evil. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're cartoonishly a fight evil. In the yeah. funeral, in the first movie, like there's a fight. And that's where, in the book. Oh, boy. The father starts yelling at, uh, you know, at the father character and the villain and like knocks over the coffin and the body <laughs> and, comes out. And <laughs> true awful. to form, King tried to include as much of that as possible from the book. And a lot of that was in the book, even yes. it kind of popping open and you see his hand um, and all of that is in there, but it's all directly attached to the Judaism of the character, which is Mm -hmm. hugely problematic and pisses me off to no end. But in this, you don't get any of that. It's just, she was home alone. And instead of having the fear painted as a child's imagination running wild, they just kind of went for broke and turned everything up to 11 and decided to truly make Zelda into a real monster. Cause that's not what spinal meningitis looks like folks. I hate to break it to you. Google it. You'll take a quick look and know immediately that that's a lot of creative licensing. And it's just, it, it's that's a, a shame because I get all my medical information from Stephen King films. So um, <laughs> this is really disappointing to hear. Anyway, I'm so sorry. Thank you, Didn't thank mean you for shattering my world there. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, so I think you're also expressing your disappointment with this, this scene in the, in the new film as well. Right. Oh, big time. I, it doesn't, it just doesn't do it. Like it's creepy. Sure. And the whole thing of Zelda being this terrifying part that gave kids nightmares and, you know, the late eighties, early nineties is, you know, fully accurate. But instead of that being something that little kids could look at and go, wow, that's horrifying. And you can kind of put yourself into the vantage point of thinking that would be terrifying for a child. They're just making a 
they're making her into part of a creature feature and that's mm-hmm. not what this is supposed to be. Right, right. Well, I, I think the thing that was most confusing is that then why not make Amy Simons' character the main parent character, right? Because exactly. at least she has she has like, oh, she let a family member die and like now like her wanting to undo that at, at no matter what the cost would, would make some kind of sense, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, all I- the Jason Clark character has is uh, the random dude that he uh, didn't save uh, mm-hmm. in the the ER, which, by the way, like, uh, yeah, pretty, let's talk about that. Pretty rough scene <laughs> because, first of all, like you're supposed to be seeing his brain, but it's like the makeup is protruding like out of his head very clearly, right? So mm-hmm. it's like the the effect is not super convincing. And then this guy says like the portal, like the the, the what does he call it? says like the the door has been breached or something like that. Mm-hmm. He says like. The barrier has been breached, like the the barrier. The barrier has been broken. Yeah, yeah. B- broken. Like this is some Twin Peaks shit. Yeah. yeah like what? What, <laughs> what is he talking like? But like, what the? F- what is he talking I, I, about? Like, I will say at least this movie has less of that ghost because my god, in the first movie, it is everywhere. It is it is on the plane with the wife. It is in a truck as the wife is like hitchhiking home. Like it is ridiculous. I don't, so, I don't care how much of it he back. has. I, I'm, I'm curious, like, is there a reason, like, is there any explanation for what that well, character is supposed he, to be? He is just like laying out the, the plot, like basically, right? He's, he's supposed to be a spirit guide. He's that's, that's his function. Yeah, he was a student on campus who was jogging and he was run over by a car. And then he died in his, in his, you know, surgical wing or whatever in the hospital at the university and then he haunted him and he kind of acted as this vessel to guide him kind of a get away from all the shit that he winds up doing but <laughs> instead, miserably. that almost makes this a lot worse though because and i think we would be at, i mean other people have had the same bone to pick and i feel remiss if i didn't bring it up pick it victor pascal is <laughs> victor pascal is is a white dude in the book Mm-hmm. I'm not sitting here going, oh, you know, we shouldn't be having more diverse casts. That's not it at all. You literally took a white character who served as a spiritual guide and you gave it to a black actor who you then sing like with one fell swoop transformed into the magical Negro trope that we've mm-hmm. been trying to fight against for decades. Like it's it, it, it to me, that casting decision felt really counterintuitive and counterproductive. I don't think it needed to happen. And frankly, especially after things like horror noir have come out on shutter talking about misrepresentation in horror films, making that decision feels like a really backhanded move Mm -hmm, (laughs) like mm -hmm. it just doesn't really take into account the significance of how we choose our casting decisions Mm. in any other situation it wouldn't matter but like this is i mean they've been like this this has been an issue for decades (laughs) like let's not make the conscious decision to put that in the foreground of a major motion picture right now guys (laughs) i guess i I was just you know i i think it's a valid point but i'm also just like very confused at what the character is even talking about. Like he's saying the, yeah, the barrier yeah. has been breached, but like haven't, mm-hmm. but isn't it implied that people have been burying, you know, animals and all kinds of shit in this pet cemetery for years now? Right. Like here's so the other. Yeah. Why, why is it now that the barrier has been breached? Like, hasn't it been breached like decades ago, you know? And then like Judd's wife coming back and like that, the way that was explained, I thought was very mm-hmm. poor. I didn't even understand what they were saying about Judd's wife. Right. And she was alive mm-hmm. in the first film, but like, in this movie, I, I don't, I don't really get what it's. It's done so quickly, like the dialogue is so fast that I didn't really mm-hmm. understand what they're trying to say with that character. 
Um, so I was less, you know, I, I was more confused at like what is even what is the supernatural metaphysical nature of what is going on <laughs> during the course of this film right that's what i was but more confused about it's just one of many things that just became really muddled and a little messy because instead of trying to bring the character motivation out of the source material they were just trying to bring the original film back to life mm. and i think that's where they messed up ultimately like yes there are a lot of really great scares zelda is genuinely terrifying in this film did she need to be not so much would we have benefited from getting a bit more character motivation out of judd from getting you know more of anything out of Jason Clark as Lewis, you know, switching things up a little, making Rachel and Amy Simons take the lead, giving that to the mother instead of the father. Like you could make changes and have them work, but ultimately instead of doing that, they just kind of tried to paint by numbers and left out a lot of the nuance in the background. Cause Victor Pascoe is way too prominent in the first film. You're right. Um, but he's, really transparent here and feels rather ornamental where he mm -hmm. doesn't need to like there's holes and there's just I, I think there's just a lot of mistakes here and mishandlings of the material personally person i know i'm gonna piss a lot of people off with that but frankly uh i don't think so i don't think so i think this movie is not doing <laughs> that well critically anyway but it's interesting to speak with both of you and reflect on uh, how it went wrong. So yeah. uh, I, I think you'd be fascinated to watch the original film, Dave, like at some point, definitely. if you're bored, like there's some really good stuff there. And then you look at that and be like this movie, this remake has even less inventiveness than you thought it did. Well, I'll say it. even your description yeah. of that final shot seemed like really cool. Like, yeah, that that seems like something I want to see. You know, it's, it yeah. has its place. It's a lot of fun. Like, it's, it's really silly, good. It's pretty tongue in cheek. But it's it's a, it's kind of a blast. <laughs> like, yeah. Lambert did a great job with it. Have you guys seen Pet Cemetery 2? No. I have not. That movie, that movie stars Edward Furlong. Mm. And um who else? Uh Clancy Wait a second. Brown. You're telling me Yep, Clancy yeah. Brown. You're Clancy telling me Brown. that the Pet Cemetery franchise has starred two John Connors? Two John yeah. Connors. That's where we are. And it's also crazy. Clancy Brown is his stepfather <laughs> and Clancy Brown comes back from the dead. That movie is bonkers. But it's a ton of fun. Like that movie actually aims to be like kind of fun and kind of comedic. But I remember really digging it. I don't know if it really holds up, though. It has a All 24 I've ever heard percent Ron Tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, All well, I've ever heard is that part two is supposed to be amazing. And that was also Mary Lambert. But I think yes. she was given a bit more creative freedom with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think the fact that she was able to like, you know, go from and the first movie was super successful too. like she was able to do a sequel on her own terms, which is even more bonkers, I think is more fun. So I'm looking forward to revisiting that. And I've read a couple of interviews too. Mary Lambert apparently really wants to remake the dead zone. I would love to see that. That sounds mm -hmm. great for today. Yeah, that would be cool. I wonder who the politician would be. Mm. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, that's our review of Pet Cemetery. Then, unfortunately, it was a huge disappointment. I saw this movie in <laughs> Dolby. Actually, I, I, I want you to know, <laughs> I saw it in Dolby, and uh, uh, it, it actually did work for the jump scares. I thought it did enhance them a little bit. There because was one, they uh, they move the seats, like the seats punch you a little. Yeah, they punch you a little bit. So it's yeah. good. Uh, actually, before we wrap up, <laughs> there is one thing I must bring up, which is that uh, there is a moment in Arrested Development. Uh, which is now a meme, right? And it's uh, Job looking kind of off into the middle distance and saying, I've made a huge mistake. 
right? <laughs> and uh, I, I quote that line to my wife all the time, and we kind of like we quote Arrested Development to ourselves to each other a lot. But like that's one of like the classic lines. And if you if you search on Twitter like or anywhere for gifts, like I've made a huge mistake. Like Job's face pops up, and it's very funny. Uh, and I felt like this movie was I've made a huge mistake. The movie, and and there's <laughs> yeah. there's like. Uh, it's, and I it's keep like making them. It, yeah, and it's this <laughs> character doing these really stupid things. But there's literally that scene where uh, the the daughter has just come back to life, and they're lying in bed together, and Jason Clark's looking up at the ceiling. He has the exact same look as Joe Bluth does in that scene when he says, "I've I've made a huge mistake." Just play the rest of the development theme there and cut the movie. Like go to credits. Yeah, I would watch that. I think that would be infinitely more enjoyable. Honestly, indeed, yeah. indeed. Um, all right. Well, I think that's going to wrap us up for today uh, on the Slash Filmcast here. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week. But in the meantime, uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Our theme song comes from AdamWarrock.com. Uh, and our Slash Film Court theme, which we use occasionally, comes from SimonMHarris.com. This episode was produced by Beatty Zhang. Uh, so stay tuned for what we'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, Ariel Fisher, where can we find more of your work on the internet this week? You uh, This week, unfortunately, there's not much to do. I'm recovering from a concussion, so I haven't been doing much. But um, you can find me in general on Twitter at AFIS8, A-F-I-S-8. Uh, that's my handle pretty much everywhere, and I share everything I do on various social medias. So So long as you search that, you're pretty good. Ariel, it's been a delight to have you on this episode and uh, hope you had a good time Thank and ho- hope to have you on in the future. Um, yes, please. Devendra, where can I find more of your stuff? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra. I write about tech at engadget.com. I'm also doing a tech podcast at nomoretech.net. That's no with a K. And uh, you find all my stuff at davechen.net. I'm also hosting a podcast about Game of Thrones called A Cast of Kings. You can find that at gameofthronespodcast.com. Next week... By the way, Dave, I heard you won NPR with a certain Joanna <laughs> Robinson. Congrats. Thanks. On being featured. Yeah, I was recently featured on All Things Considered uh, with my co-host, Joanna Robinson. And uh, yeah, that was that was delight. All Things Considered, one of my favorite public radio shows. So to be... I was making dinner and they were like, we're going to talk about Game of Thrones podcast. And I was like, of course, it's going to be Joanna. But which one? And of course, it's Dave. So yeah. that was great. That yeah, was awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, was, it was a delight to be featured and... Uh, always fascinating to see like how people who are hyper competent at radio, you know, put together the show. Right? Uh, we recorded like thirty minutes of discussion, and they edited it down to like this five and a half like best oh, minutes. Man. Um, and uh, and that's it's cool. I I love observing it as just someone. Were, who you is... were in studio for that too? No. So what we did because like you know when you're dealing with uh, me and Joanna, you're dealing with a team. Uh, yeah. We like recorded our own audio using our own microphones, and they all they spliced it together. Oh so, wow, that's um, very nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it, it was it was really great to do, and uh, you can hear that on All Things Considered or find that at the NPR website. And of course, you can listen to me and Joanna at GameOfThronesPodcast dot com. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks to all the people who like shouted out uh, when they heard that. I got some random messages from people being like, "I was driving home from work and I heard you on the radio." <laughs> you know, like so that was fun. <laughs> Uh, anyway, next week is the summer movie wager, and uh, it's going to be pretty fun. So uh, stay tuned to hear what movies we predict. Yeah, summer be... in April, everybody. <laughs> what movies we predict will be the top 10 
movies of the summer by domestic box office. So, uh, and again, you can enter uh, yourself at thesummermoviewager.com um, to be featured in our leaderboard. You just need to enter by, I think, April 24th, 11.59 p.m. Pacific time, and you will be able to enter our leaderboard for the Summer Movie Wager. So check that out. And again, thanks to Dennis for making all that Summer Movie Wager stuff happen this year. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next week on the Slash Filmcast. Get enough eye-popping, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping reality TV. It's the best. Then head to Hey You, home of reality on demand. Stream and download the latest episodes from shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives, same day as the US. What's more fun than that? Or binge old faves like The Simple Life and The Hills. That's hot. Hey You, reality on demand. Start your one-month free trial now.